Welcome to Locked On Mariners, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Here's your host, D.C. Lundberg. It's Friday, ladies and gentlemen. D.C. Lundberg here, Locked On Network's king of the road. That was terrible. But I'm coming at you today from Rathdrum, Idaho, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, Rathdrum, Idaho, as the Locked On Mariners party in the panhandle continues, I suppose. Rathdrum, Idaho, today. We've been in Idaho all this week. We're going to continue to bring our shows to you from Idaho for the foreseeable future because it is opening back up, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm only 20 minutes away. That's why I'm over here. And i got to say, there are a lot of Washington license plates, way more than I'm used to seeing in Idaho. In any case, I'm rambling, but do remember to download, rate, and subscribe to Locked On Mariners on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or whichever podcasting app that you personally care to use. Also remember that we are part of the Locked On Podcast Network, which is uh, sponsored by Built Bar all this month. You can ask your smart device to play Locked On Mariners podcast or any of the other programs here on Tloppin. Follow this show on Twitter at LO underscore Mariners. Follow me on Twitter as well at DC underscore Lundberg, L-U-N-D-B-E-R-G, if you're scoring at home. We are wrapping up our what-if scenarios for the Seattle Mariners this week, or really our what-if scenario that I you know, brought to you over the last couple of days. And we're going to kind of delve into that a little bit and kind of back up you know, what I said, that the Mariners weren't getting past Cleveland and certainly weren't getting past Atlanta if they were to get past Cleveland. Here with me to talk about that is somebody who is not on the road. He is, in fact, at home in the South Puget Sound region. That is our very own Locked On Mariners contributor, John Miller. John, hello from Rathdrum. Hello. How is it in Idaho? Raining. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's uh, it's raining today. Although I, I love it over here, um, I filled up uh, the uh, Locked On Mariners mobile unit with gas before today's program, and which of course is my car. And uh, one thing I love about it is that gas is so cheap over here compared to Spokane, where prices have kind of stagnated a little a little bit. But in Idaho, they continue to drop like a rock. The gas station I go to unleaded is only one forty seven a gallon. That is incredible. That's just to make all you Seattle listeners jealous out there. In any case, um, this was probably the longest intro in the history of this program. So let's let's get into the actual program. Um, I know you listened to our first two episodes of this week, yesterday and the day before. You know, kind of changing the the dynamics of the September twenty seventh, nineteen ninety five game to turn that into a two nothing Mariners win rather than a defeat which really wasn't that far-fetched, quite honestly. And then going through the playoffs, you told me before we uh, went on air today that you actually did look up how the Mariners did against the Yankees in 1995 and how they did against the Indians in 1995. I'm particularly curious on the Mariners' record versus the Indians in 1995 because I posit that the Indians were such a good team. The offenses were similar. Mariners' offense may be a little bit better, but Cleveland's pitching was certainly far, far superior. How did the Indians, pardon me, how did the Mariners do against the Indians in 1995 at large during the regular season? Against the Indians in the nine games that they played, mm-hmm. Mariners lost five of them. Cleveland won four. The Mariners scored 42 runs and only allowed 44 runs. Wow. Okay, and then, you know, 44 so, runs, 42 It was very runs, close. Very close, and I don't have, uh, you know, and since I'm on the road, I don't have the tools that I ordinarily do. 
And I was wondering, John, if you could divide those 42 runs and 44 runs over those nine games so we can see how many runs they were scoring per game and then allowing per game versus Cleveland. The Seattle Mariners would have scored an average of four and a half, actually 4.666, whatever, mm-hmm. runs a game. And the Indians would have scored about 4.888 something runs a game. Okay. And, um, you know, I'm not, exa- I don't know if that's near their, you know, league averages or not. But, you know, again, looking over some of the Cleveland Indians numbers for the 1995 season. They're off. I said that maybe their offense wasn't as good as the Mariners. They were better than the Mariners. They led the American League in home runs in 1995. They led the American League in batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, total bases, runs scored, hits. They were second in doubles. They, you know, in just about every single important offensive category, the Cleveland Indians led the American League. And in this 144-game season, remember, John, they won 100 of them. Averaged out over 162 games. I think it's 111 or 112 wins. This was just a great, great team. And we haven't haven't even spoken about their, their starting pitching yet. Dennis Martinez, at age 41, had a brilliant season. Charles Nagy, one of the most underrated pitchers of the 90s, did not have the best season, but he certainly did okay. Oral Hershiser had a great season. Chad OJ, a young Chad OJ, had a very, very good season. And Ken Hill came over, I believe, at the deadline. Or maybe he started the season with them. I don't remember. And he did very well. And their bullpen was was lights out. Jose Mesa, this might have been his finest season as a major leaguer. He had a 1-1-3 ERA that season and 46 saves. Just a dominant team, John. Uh, yes. And you mentioned the Indians could have had as many as 111 or 112 wins. Uh, it wasn't until 1998 that the New York Yankees got 114 and set the then American League win record. Mm-hmm, correct. If the Indians had gotten 111, 112, they could have very well tied or beaten their old record going back to 1954 of 111 wins. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, the strike really cost a lot of players and teams some accomplishments. It cost the Indians, obviously, maybe a tie or a outright hold of the American League wins record. It wouldn't have lasted very long, as you just noted, because the uh, New York Yankees won 114 in 1998. And then I think the Seattle Pilots or something hold the record right now. I don't know when they did that, but but um, 116 wins by some by some team in 2001. I know it was the Mariners, ladies and gentlemen. Don't write me. I'm just goofing around. But, you know, and the strike cost the Indians that. It cost Tony Gwynn maybe a run at 400. It cost Matt Williams and Barry Bonds, when he was still skinny, a chance at Roger Maris's single-season record. But, you know, back to back to these Cleveland Indians, you know, they were so, so good. I didn't realize their offense was as good as it was. Albert Bell would have been the MVP of the American League that year, if he wasn't such a jackass, let's face it, Mo Vaughn won the award. But Bell had a season for the ages that year. He had 50 home runs and 50 doubles, I believe. I don't really need to believe that. I can actually look it up right now as he vamps for time. Yes, here we go. Albert Bell in 1995 had 52 doubles and 50 home runs, 126 runs batted in. That speaks for itself, John. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know exactly why I tossed it to you at that point since it did speak for itself. But, 
you know, you know. <laughs> I, but I didn't realize that the Indians, I mean, I knew that they were really, really good, and I knew that their pitching was really, really good. I didn't realize their offense was that great. I mean, this is a historically great offense. But just to play devil's advocate, let's say that they had a bunch of players injured or something, or their starting pitching blew up, and the Mariners made it to the World Series against the Atlanta Braves. The, the Mariners were not going to beat the Braves either. You know, their offense, and I'll go over some of their offensive numbers. They were second in the National League in home runs. They were uh, ninth in runs scored. Their offense was a very productive, solid offense, not really historically great. And they did have uh, Fred McGriff, who, is, for my money, is a Hall of Famer. If it wasn't for the strike, he'd have 500 home runs. Chipper Jones is a Hall of Famer. David Justice was one of the top left-handed hitters of his era. Mark Lemke was one of my favorite players. Solid hitter, good contact guy. Good to have either the number two spot or the number eight spot because he could bunt people over and did the little things. And, oh yeah, their pitching staff. Greg Maddox, Hall of Fame. Tom Glavin, Hall of Fame. John Smoltz, Hall of Fame. All three of them in their prime. And then they also had Steve Avery, who at the time was one of the top young pitchers in the National League, just kind of fell off a cliff after he got to the Red Sox. And their bullpen was also very, very good. Mark Wohlers had a great season for them with a 2.09 ERA and 25 saves. Again, as special as this 1995 Mariners team was, the Indians had a better team. And the Braves had a better team. That's all there is to it, John, I think. Uh, Yes, even if the Mariners had somehow squeaked by the Indians, the farthest they would have taken the Braves, and this would have just been pure luck, Mm -hmm. is six games. Uh, I don't think it would even, even have gotten that far. Not with that pitching staff. Good pitching always beats good hitting in the postseason. And the Braves, that's the top that was the top pitching staff in baseball at the time. Yeah, the, there have been many comparisons made to other pitching staffs, and you can go back to Koufax and Drysdale or Warren Spahn and Sane and guys like that, but the, the Braves pitching staff for quite a while there, a good stretch of time, yeah, was right up there with any pitching staff you care to name. They acquired uh, Smoltz, John Smoltz from the Tigers uh, for Doyle Alexander in the late 80s when he was a Tigers farmhand. Tom Glavin was homegrown, and they acquired Greg Maddox as a free agent in 1993 as if they didn't already have two you know, future Hall of Famers in their starting rotation plus Steve Avery. And even after Avery went to the Red Sox, they still had that, you know, those that three-headed monster, if you will. Kevin Millwood came up through the system and had some very good seasons with them. So you're right. I mean, we're talking about a dominant, dominant, historically good starting rotation. And the best that the Mariners could throw out there, the the name that stands up in everyone's mind is Randy Johnson. And it was kind of Randy Johnson and, you know, a, a less-than-supporting cast Bob Walcott pitched very well in Game 1 against the, the Cleveland Indians. I, I realize that. But Chris Basio did not have a good postseason. Andy Bennis did not have a very good postseason. And he wasn't even that effective for the Mariners during the regular season after he was acquired from the Padres. And Tim Belcher was hit or miss. They were really going off a three-man rotation just to be able to pitch Randy Johnson as often as they could. And he actually did run out of steam towards the end. And... I mean, how many innings did he pitch in Game Six against the Indians? Only, 
I think he left in the sixth inning. He was gassed by that time. He had nothing left in the tank. Yeah, that's exactly right. Which is unusual to say about him because he was such a reliable workhorse. Well, and that that just goes to the Indians had such a deep team Yes, that they could go to a bullpen or perhaps have a starter rested and use him in relief. The Mariners just didn't have that. That's the word. You nail, You hit the nail on the head. The Indians were deep, not only on their bench for their position players, which they were, but they had a very, very deep rotation, and the Mariners really just had one guy they were leaning on, and the Indians' bullpen was certainly a lot better. Right now we're going to get to the Mariners' trivia question, which is the following. It actually has to do with the Mariners' bullpen in 1995. While Norm Charlton was the team's closer down the stretch after being acquired in mid-July, he did not lead the club in saves. Who did? Answer coming up after a word from Bilt Bar. You may find this hard to believe, ladies and gentlemen, but there was a point in my life where I was going to the gym pretty much every day. Even though those days are long gone, I have tried a protein supplement or two in my day. Protein shakes, bars, none of them were really all that appetizing. Built Bar is different. It does not have that weird aftertaste that many protein supplements have. They're not chalky or gritty, and they taste more like a candy bar than any protein bar that I've ever had. I've got the sample box right next to me right now as I record today's show on the road in the Locked On Mariners mobile unit, a.k.a. my car. In addition, gang, the flavors that do not have nuts in them are produced in a peanut and tree nut free facility. So if you have a nut allergy, the nut-free varieties are totally safe for you to eat. You know, unless you're also allergic to the 15-plus grams of protein per bar. In addition, they're low-sugar, they're low-calorie. Go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKEDON to get $10 off your first order. Try them for yourself, whether you want a post-workout protein boost or are looking for a healthy snack or quick bite on the way out the door in the morning, Built Bar may be the answer you are looking for. And speaking of answers, do you have the answer that we're looking for? Who led the 1995 Mariners in saves? Uh, Charlton saved 14 important games down the stretch to move the Mariners into that tie in the American League West at the end of the regular season. John, have you got any idea who led the 1995 season uh, team in saves? Well, I've got a number of guesses. I'm just going to narrow them down. All right. It was either John Cummings, Dave <laughs> Fleming, <laughs> or my final answer, Bobby Ayala. Yes, sir. It's Bobby Ayala. He saved 19 games for the Mariners that season before giving way to Norm Charlton in the closer's role. More Locked on Mariners in Rathdrum, Idaho, following a word from Postmates. Soon as I find that page. <laughs> Here we go, gang. Uh, if you're the type who starts thinking about what to eat for dinner while you're eating lunch, you will love using Postmates. They deliver food from just about any restaurant you can think of right to your door. But Postmates just doesn't deliver burgers and chicken and sushi, pizza, whatever that you can think of. Oh, no. They make your life easier with grocery delivery or whatever type of delivery your brain head can think of. 
convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. So no more trips to the store, no more late-night fast food runs. You won't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. And as I've been saying, Washington's going to be in lockdown for a hell of a long time, I get the feeling, which is why I'm doing the show in Idaho in a free state. So that just makes Postmates that much more important. You don't need to go anywhere. They can come to you. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android, find your favorites, and get anything you want delivered within the hour, gang. And for a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use code Locked On. That's code Locked On for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates up. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. Now time for the second half of Locked On Mariners. Once again, your host, D.C. Lundberg. Yes, indeed. I'm not going to sing this time because it didn't work out so well in the first at the top of the show, but that is Joey Martin leading you back into Locked on Mariners, live to tape today from Rathdrum, Idaho, with uh, John Miller, who was not with me in Rathdrum, Idaho. He is uh, he's at home in the South Puget Sound region talking about kind of the Mariners' what-if situations. We kind of went off on the Braves and Indians for the most part in the first half of the show. we got to bring it back to the Mariners and... John, as I was thinking about how to go about this this theme week, um, a lot of little what-if situations popped up in my head, which are kind of more in the line of personal accomplishments and whatnot. You know, Brian Holman was the first one I thought of. You know, what if, uh, you know, what if Ken Phelps would have struck out, or what if uh, Mike Gallego came to the plate and wasn't pinch hit for? Would have been a special game, wouldn't it have, John? That really would have been a special game, and... Uh, who knows what may have happened to his career as a result of that. Actually, and you bring up a good point because his career was really derailed by injuries. What if that never happened? Yeah, exactly. And he was part of the trade that brought Randy Johnson to the Mariners from Montreal, and Johnson was not the centerpiece of that trade. Holman was. So if you know, the Mariners had Johnson through the middle of the 1998 season, who knows what Holman would have done if he would have stayed healthy, but man, that would have been a great one-two punch that the Mariners would have had, wouldn't it have been? Uh, yes, and if another guy that we had around that time, Eric Hansen, had been able to stay healthy, they could have been really good. That would have been a wonderful one-two-three in the starting rotation. You know, Eric Hansen was traded after the 1993 season. I I'm, I know you know this, John. Just kind of a just kind of a recap for those who may not know. Eric Hansen was traded from the Mariners to the Cincinnati Reds, along with Brett Boone, to acquire Dan Wilson and Bobby Ayala in return. You know that the Mariners got Dan Wilson out of that. It was a really good. That's that, that's a really good trade for the Mariners, especially considering that after that is when Hanson really ran into arm problems, and his signature pitch was that curveball. So if you got arm problems and you're a curveball pitcher, you're toast. Yeah. And kind of speaking of trades, I kind of hate to bring this up, but 1997 trading deadline. If the Mariners did not were not so desperate for bullpen help, you know. Who knows what could have happened if they were able to keep Jose Cruz Jr. Because they had developed him through the system. He was the minor league player of the year in 1996. 
and didn't make the club out of spring training. And on this show a couple times, I've always said, well, I don't know why the Mariners didn't make more of an effort to sign Mark Witten after the 1996 season. I'm guessing it actually might have to do with they thought Jose Cruz Jr. was ready. And he wasn't ready out of spring training, but he was called up, I believe, in May or at the very end of April and did very well. I think he hit 268 in his brief time in Seattle. And his career batting average, I believe, was 248. He wound up as something as a journeyman. But, you know, he was a, he liked hitting in the kingdom. He may have had a better career had he, what, if he were able to stay in Seattle rather than having to be traded away for bullpen help. Um, any thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I distinctly remember that trade. And at the time, I was against it. And even to this day, I, I like to go to the what if and – he was our top prospect. He was a minor league player of the year. He had a good start. Mm-hmm. And then you trade him away for bullpen. A reasonable journeyman veteran bullpen help are kind of a dime a dozen. So I wouldn't trade a top prospect like that. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're definitely on to something. You're definitely on to something. Who else did the Mariners have that they could have – traded and that's kind of an ambiguous rhetorical question because of course we don't know and then the other trade that the Mariners made that day Heathcliff Slocum for Derek Lowe and Jason Veritek who both went on to become stars and I was only reminded of this because I was watching um, uh, Chopped the other day and Jason Veritek was one of the celebrity judges but in any case um, (laughs) the, the Veritek probably would have come up to the big leagues in 1998 and had a similar role to that of Chris Widger, like someone in a timeshare with Dan Wilson, even though Dan Wilson was the number two catcher in the American League at that time, I think. Certainly, you know, certainly the defense was there. But, you know, how long would the Mariners would have held on to Dan Wilson before giving the reins to Veritek? And I know Lowe was not very effective in 1997 with the Seattle Mariners, who knows what kind of career he would have had, you know, as a Mariner, because he really didn't pitch very well in the kingdom, I hate to say. Uh, no, he didn't. And the the talk with Wilson and, and Widger and Veritek, well, you end up with, okay, we've got a, a great young prospect here in Veritek. What do we do with him? Do we ha- get have him a good year and then trade him off or – do we have him platoon for the position and maybe have Wilson go away? When you when you got two good catchers like that and you don't want to let a good catcher go, what are your options? Honestly, I think I think that the Veritech low trade makes a lot more sense to me than the Jose Cruz Jr. trade, even though the return on the investment for low and Veritech was practically zero. If you know, let if Slocum would have pitched even decently for the Mariners, forget well, you know, it, or let's just say he pitched very well for the Mariners and he and he gave them three or four years of solid back end relief, then the trade might be worth it. Um, but that's an awful hard pill to swallow. Still, uh, very hard. Yes. And moving away from that, because I don't want to get killed by irate Mariners fans by uh, <laughs> by talking about that trade too much, 
one of the other kind of what if scenarios, kind of going back to the personal accomplishment uh, field, was uh, Mike Cameron, his four home run game. They were in his first four at bats, and I think he had two more at bats following that. And I remember specifically listening to the radio broadcast, and there was a pitch that he took, which was a fastball, basically right down the middle of the plate, and he didn't offer at it. If he would have put a good swing on it, maybe he's got the major league record. Uh, yeah, that is something that I've gone back and forth on and having gone back and watched the clips of the four home runs number of times, having watched that game, and even before re-watching the game, distinctly remembering that in his last at-bat, he hit, it was to, I want to say, moderately deep right field. Uh, yeah. And it was caught, and mm-hmm. we're watching the game live, and go, like, oh my god, there it is, and like ten feet from the track or something. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, I, I mean, I know this is our theme for the Locked On Network this week. I kind of feel like playing these what if games are a little bit unfair to these players because four home runs and hitting back-to-back home runs with the same teammate twice in the same inning, which is the only time that's ever happened in Major League history, you know, that's that's an accomplishment in and of itself. I mean, that's the game of Mike Cameron's life, and nobody can take that away from him. And Brian Holman, same thing. That was the game of his life, and nobody's going to take that away from him. And the Mariners obviously put their heart and soul into the 1995 season, and I kind of feel like I'm insulting these men a little bit by kind of playing with what if this happened here, what if this happened there, and, you know, I I, I don't mean it that way, and I hope it doesn't come across that way. You know what I mean? Uh, I know very well what you mean, and I certainly don't want to do that. These are great men, great human beings, great ball players, some of them, and if we really wanted, we could pick apart any. We could go to, he wasn't with the Mariners at the time, unfortunately, but Randy Johnson's perfect game. Right and go, what about this 3-0, 3-1 count that he had? If the umpire suddenly calls out a ball, thinks it's a little bit outside, well, there you go. He doesn't have a perfect game. And going back to Randy Johnson, this just sprung into my head. Two times during the 1997 season, while he was with the Mariners, he struck out 19 hitters. What if two more per game strike out? Then he's got the major league record. Yeah. And. You know, again, not to take anything away from from these accomplishments, because they are fantastic accomplishments. But you know, anytime something doesn't quite work out exactly the way you want it to, the what if games kind of do go on in in your head. Whether you're talking about a sports team you're rooting for, or you know, something. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stop because I don't like where this is going. But um, you know, everybody's kind of got what ifs in their life and they're hard not to think about but again I don't want to do a disservice to these to these ball players who put their heart and soul into everything and these accomplishments that we're talking about you know they're they're great in their own right yeah they really are and it does as well to talk about them, but then not keep going with what if Mike Cameron did this or that and lose sight of the fact that he's one of only a handful of people in the history of the game that have ever hit four home runs in a game. That's correct. And if and if you really go take it too far, 
it's going to get to the point where, well, the Mariners could have won 162 games in, in whichever season and then swept the postseason. That's just not feasible. I guess it's mathematically possible, and but it's just not going to happen. Yeah, no, it's not. And Randy Johnson striking out 19, okay, well, at that point he doesn't have the single season record for or the game record for strikeouts, but... 19 is great, and when you we interview him after the game or talk interview him years later and talk about something like that, we don't ask him, well, what about this, what about that? You know, exactly, and the fact that he did it twice in one season and less in, he, you know, one of those games was a Mariners loss, that's on the offense. Totally. <laughs> because when your pitcher's striking out 19 a game, he's obviously dominating. you got to support him, man. And, yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And I guess that's kind of the, the basis of this entire week. And I think with that, we are going to wrap up for the day. John, where can the good people find you on Twitter? I can be found on the Twitter sphere at SeattlePilot69. Very good, and thank you again for joining us here today, John. Always a pleasure having you join us here on Locked On Mariners. Thank you very much for having me. You are very welcome, and a reminder to you listening out there to please remember to download, rate, and subscribe to Locked On Mariners on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or whichever podcasting app that you like to use. Follow the show on Twitter at LO underscore Mariners. Follow me on Twitter at DC underscore Lundberg. We will be back with you next week with another theme, which I don't recall off the top of my head, from yet another city in the beautiful gem state as the Locked On Mariners party in the panhandle continues. Until then, ladies and gentlemen, have a wonderful weekend and happy Mother's Day. This is Joey Martin saying join us back here next time for another edition of Locked On Mariners part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Ask your smart device to play Locked On MLB upon the conclusion of this program.